Welcome to my series of short podcasts about the stories of the Tudors. My name's Tony Riches and I'm a historical fiction author from Pembrokeshire in Wales and a specialist in the history of the early Tudors. Over the next six months, I'll be talking about the wives of King Henry VIII. So in this podcast, I'm looking at the life of Queen Catherine of Aragon. Now, Catherine has featured in each of my last four books, as well as in my current work in progress about Catherine Willoughby. So I do feel I know her rather better than most. And I followed her story from when she left Spain at the age of 15 through to her death. And I do feel that perhaps she's a little misunderstood by a lot of people, although she's better known than she was. In schools, I feel that they are quite keen to get on to the more interesting, as they see it, story of Anne Boleyn. And perhaps they don't quite do Catherine justice in that her story is much more complex than the the typically popular explanation of her life. So I'd like to take us back to the beginning. And on the 16th of December, 1485, Catherine of Aragon was born in Spain, the youngest daughter of the King Ferdinand II of Aragon and the amazing Isabella of Castile. Isabella deserves a whole podcast of her own, but she's worth looking up because she was quite an amazing woman in her own right. And we do see um, something of Isabella in Catherine's spirit, particularly once her her role as Queen of England is challenged. But in my book about Henry Tudor, um, he was very keen to have a treaty with Spain and to have it sealed by the marriage of uh, young Catherine to Arthur, his eldest son. And they formalised this in a thing called the Treaty of Medina del Campo, which uh, was signed in 1489. And really it set out that the marriage would go ahead when Catherine reached the age of 14 years, which was quite typical for those times. And her dowry of 200,000 crowns would be paid half when the marriage took place and the rest after the first year of marriage. Now, this is Ferdinand being a bit clever because I don't even think he wanted to put all the money up front. But the ramifications of it dragged on for ages because, of course, um, we do know what happened. But as far as Henry was concerned, it was a great deal because he secured this alliance with the very powerful Spanish and it turned uh, England into a, a force to be reckoned with straight away. So Catherine and Arthur were betrothed by proxy 
in 1497 and um, formally married by proxy. It was strange how these uh, marriages took place uh, without both parties always being present with the the rather interesting Spanish ambassador de Puebla uh, standing in for Catherine. I'm not sure um, whether he was the subject of a few jokes about that. But I, in 1501, on the 21st of May, Catherine left Alhambra in Granada and set out for the port of Corona and to get on a ship to come to England. But sadly, uh, the weather was against her and they weren't even able to depart. And I, I'm not sure how superstitious the Spanish were at the time, but I would imagine it wouldn't be seen as a good omen. Uh, they didn't have favourable winds. And when they did actually leave, um, on the 21st of August, they got caught in a dreadful storm in the Bay of Biscay, which terrified Catherine. And um, they were forced to turn back and they ended up at uh, Laredo near Bilbao. I've been there, and uh, it's now an industrial city, but it's a long way. You feel like you're a long way from home when you're in Bilbao. Um, the ship that they were in was almost a write-off, by the way. It had to have a lot of repairs, and it was September, the end of September, before they tried for third time lucky, and landed in Plymouth um, in October, so they didn't do too badly, where she had really quite a good welcome by the people of Plymouth and was escorted to the town of Exeter by the noblemen of Devon and Cornwall. And one of the first strange things that happened after she arrived was that King Henry VII decided that he wanted to personally um, meet her, see what he'd... he'd um, committed his son to and really that's against all of the protocols but <clears throat> with with young Arthur Henry the seventh rode out from London to meet her in Hampshire and that must have been uh, a rather curious meeting because I should imagine that she could speak hardly any English at the time and uh, Henry his Spanish would have just been not even uh, conversational so they would have had to work through interpreters. And uh, there is a scene in my book on Henry where he actually quite takes, he's quite taken by her because uh, we do tend to think of Catherine as this slightly dowdy, older woman um, looking very stern in the portraits. But if you take the trouble to look at the what we think of the portraits of her as a young girl, she's quite pretty by the standards of the day with long red gold hair and is quite personable and uh, she's she's a princess at the end of the day and would be quite wealthy and confident with all of that and certainly able to be a match for uh, Henry the seventh anyway she eventually made her way into London and processed to London Bridge dressed in the full Spanish style and followed by all of her Spanish ladies and gentlemen. So it was quite a novelty for the people of London because uh, the whole of her route was uh, hung with tapestries and uh, there were pageants at every corner. And, of course, she was married to uh, Prince Arthur in, in Port St Paul's Cathedral, 
not the St Paul's Cathedral that we know now, but the predecessor, which was lost, sadly, in the Great Fire of London. But um, the king uh, escorted her up the aisle and the Archbishop of Canterbury um, conducted the ceremony. And it's interesting because this is one of the first um, instances of um, a wedding dress being white. Wedding dresses didn't used to be white, but um, according to the records, she was dressed in white with a veil of fine white silk covered in white pearls and gold thread. And a massive um, wedding banquet was held to celebrate all of that. And Ferdinand actually paid the first instalment of 100,000 gold crowns. So um, Henry thought everything was going to be great and uh, he was rubbing his hands together ready for the second instalment. So um, this is where it starts to go a little bit wrong because Henry thought it would be good for Arthur to be his own man and to learn how to govern by uh, looking after the Welsh marches. And he sent uh, the newlywed um, Catherine and Arthur off to Ludlow Castle, which is actually quite a, a grand castle even to this day. And I can imagine that at the time, um, Arthur had been fairly happy with that. Um, he'd, he'd always been in his father's shadow. And um, from what we know of him, and there is a, a podcast I've done about Arthur, but uh, he was a fairly um, scholarly type of person. But he had his um, friends with him and um, he had his wife with him. And sadly, um, they went there. They arrived there in late March. And, and by the 2nd of April, which is um, in not long afterwards, uh, both of them were struck down by a mystery illness. Now, there are lots of lots of thoughts about uh, whether this was in fact the sweating sickness, which I've referred to before, a terrifying thing which used to sweep through the country and just take rich and poor. They would go to their beds with a dreadful sweating fever and there was no known cure. And um, most people are aware that Arthur was struck down by it, but few people are aware, fewer people are aware anyway, that Catherine almost died then as well, which would have been um, a really cruel blow. But um, after Arthur died, uh, she managed to recover. There's an interesting thing in that um, Arthur's funeral was a little bit strange and um, he was buried in the Abbey of St Wolfstone in Worcester and Catherine didn't even attend the funeral because that was the tradition of the time that wives didn't attend their husband's funeral. So it, it, she was still probably in bed with the, if it was the sweating sickness, she would have been almost delirious perhaps. But there would have been no sense of closure, I don't think, um, because she would have eventually recovered and returned to London, um, almost uh, bewildered by what had happened to it all. The... King of, of Spain, Ferdinand, and Isabella, they didn't want to end the English alliance. So um, they sent ambassadors uh, to see if they could get the dowry back. And of course, Henry VII refused. But um, 
began negotiations for an alternative marriage to his second son, um, young Prince Henry, uh, who'd actually escorted uh, Catherine um, to her wedding. So, um, you know, they'd obviously met and they, they, they wouldn't have known each other well, but they would have known of each other. And um, they had to wait. These negotiations had to be delayed to see if Catherine was pregnant, of course, because that would change everything. And this is where the one of the great medieval mysteries begins to develop, because there seems to have been a question as to whether or not uh, her marriage was consummated. And Catherine herself remained strangely silent about it all. Now, one would have expected her to have um, well, she definitely was one person that would know for certain and uh, perhaps her advisors were telling her to play her cards quite close to her chest but uh, we'll come on to that so a new treaty was signed and um, it was agreed that Catherine would marry Henry on his 15th birthday and uh, a special dispensation was received from the Pope to allow that to go ahead and then, again, Catherine was taken ill with another fever. Um, once again, um, it looks like it might have been the sweating sickness. Now, whether we don't know enough about it, we don't even really know what it was, but uh, whether it was that the, she hadn't really recovered from the first one, but she'd been keen to get away from Ludlow, understandably, or whether she was just unlucky and um, uh, another wave of it was going through London. But... While she was still ill, her mother, Isabella of Castile, died. And that changed things yet again, because it did change the value of Catherine as a bride for what was now Henry's only son. And he began shopping around to see uh, what the alternatives there were, because Catherine um, didn't have her own income. Uh, the money that had been paid certainly didn't find its way to her. And uh, there were there's lots of exchanges of ambassadorial communications um, asking uh, King Ferdinand to send her money and then asking um, Henry VII to be a bit more generous. Um, and meanwhile, um, Henry VII encouraged his son uh, to actually quietly protest against this idea of marrying his brother's widow and uh, they certainly delayed it and um, tried to play the game of keeping the treaty alive so keeping the alliance going without actually going as far as the marriage of, of Catherine and Henry um, I feel a bit sorry for Catherine at this point because she was in limbo really that she'd left everything she knew, come to this strange country where people um, perhaps even might mock the Spanish uh, because of their accent and everything like that. And the, the whole future looked quite uncertain. At 11 o'clock on the night of the 21st of April, 1509, King Henry VII died at Richmond Palace. It wasn't a sudden death because he'd been ill for a long time 
and he'd shut himself away at Richmond since January. But pretty soon afterwards, Catherine was visited in her private chambers by the new king, Henry VIII, and he proposed to her and she accepted. So on the 11th of June, um, which is not long after his father's death, uh, Catherine of Aragon married Henry VIII in the church at Greenwich Palace. The service was performed by the Archbishop of Canterbury and Henry was crowned king alongside Catherine, who was crowned queen at Westminster Abbey on the 24th of June. And the coronation was um, one of the big events, the biggest events that London had seen probably for most people's living memory. And the massive coronation banquet and the streets were decorated with cloth of gold and food and drink was set out free with wine flowing in the conduits for all the people. So Catherine of Aragon now had her future secured and interestingly she had adopted the pomegranate uh, which has been a symbol of fertility since ancient times as her personal badge and on the 31st of January uh, 1510 um, she was prematurely delivered of a stillborn daughter. I'd like to include a, a short extract from my audiobook edition of Mary Tudor Princess about the life of Henry VIII's sister, Mary Tudor, Queen of France, um, in which uh, she's summoned to try and support Catherine at this difficult time. It's narrated by Ruth Redman. The midwife cast Mary a concerned look as she entered the room. A fire blazed in the hearth, and the delicate scent of rose water mixed with herbs strewn on the rush-covered floor. Catherine lay in her bed, supported by colourful silk pillows, her pale face framed by her long auburn hair. Maria de Salinas, the most loyal of Catherine's maids of honour, sat at her side, reading a Latin prayer aloud in her soft Spanish accent. Maria stopped in mid-sentence, and Catherine turned her head as she heard the door open and saw Mary. Thank the Lord you've come, she glanced at the midwife. I've lost our child. Mary froze to the spot as she struggled to find the right words. Although she'd feared the worst since she was first woken, she had no idea how to help. She reached out instinctively and placed a hand on Catherine's shoulder. I'm so sorry. Her words sounded inadequate for such a disaster. Maria stood and offered Mary her chair, then made her excuses and left with the midwife. Mary turned to watch them go. She noticed bloodstains on the heavy bundle of white linen the midwife carried and wondered what they'd done with the baby. After they closed the door, Mary turned back to Catherine. She wished she knew what to say. Do you know the cause? She regretted her question as soon as she asked it. Whatever the reason for Catherine's child, it was irrelevant now. Catherine shook her head, unable to reply, then with some effort managed to compose herself. This is God's punishment on me. Her voice sounded bitter, her Spanish accent returning. No! Mary surprised herself with the force of her denial. You know as well as I that childbirth has its dangers. I had a pain. She closed her eyes at the memory. I called for the midwife and then... 
overcome with emotion, her words tailed away. Mary placed a hand on Catherine's forehead. I'm afraid I know little enough of these things, but I will pray for you, Catherine. Thank you, Mary. She wiped a tear from her eye. A thought occurred to Mary. Has anyone been sent to tell my brother? Catherine looked alarmed at the thought. He will take this badly. Mary shook her head. You misjudge Henry. He loves you greatly. A silence descended over them both as they began to think about the implications. Mary prayed she was right. Henry became more unpredictable each day, and she'd seen the looks he had given her ladies-in-waiting after Catherine entered her confinement. He'd been so proud of his impending fatherhood, making plans and counting the days. It was a girl. The sadness in Catherine's voice brought tears to Mary's eyes. Have faith, Catherine. Your time will come. On the 10th of November, 1518, uh, uh, Catherine of Aragon had another daughter, um, but sadly she died within days. So by the summer of 1519, uh, it became common knowledge that Henry's former mistress had given birth to a baby boy. And with his usual lack of um, decorum, Henry proudly named his new son Henry Fitzroy, son of the king. And Catherine began to withdraw from court life because uh, really the number of pregnancies and the number of tragic losses she's had had taken their toll. And she is thought that she became depressed, which would be completely understandable. A common enough thing in the 16th century, but tragic a tragic start to their marriage and of course the first of many and um, she announced uh, her second pregnancy um, and then the son who was named Henry um, was christened he was old enough to be christened and uh, there were lots of celebrations and then he sadly died at Richmond Palace on the 22nd of February. So, you know, the king and the queen um, coped with it really quite well in the circumstances. They were both young. They had a long future ahead of them. And Catherine began to be at Henry's side all of the time, including on his progresses uh, when he went to address the army at Dover before they were made the crossing to France. And um, Henry appointed Catherine, who was again pregnant, as regent and made her captain general and governor of the realm. So he very much had a lot of faith in his wife. And of course, the job wasn't that straightforward because the Scots invaded on the 19th of September, they were defeated at Flodden. And Catherine, um, perhaps she got a little carried away. She ordered, it is said that she ordered the body of King James to be sent to Henry in France, but she settled eventually for just sending his, either his banner or his bloodied coat. Uh, but it was proof um, that she was looking after things back in England. And we have then a, 
whole sequence of pregnancies and stillborn children. And I remember reading um, Alison Weir's book, and it seems that for that section of the book, Paul Catherine just seems to go through one pregnancy after another, and it ends very sadly right through until uh, 1516, when in February uh, she gave birth to a healthy baby girl at Greenwich Palace, and the child was named Mary. Um, of course, Henry was disappointed that it wasn't a boy, um, but Mary um, was a survivor, and as we know, um, she ended up to be Catherine's only surviving child. From then on, it was really just a matter of time, because whatever Catherine did, um, Henry managed to outmaneuver her. He sent a deputation of bishops suggesting that she might like to spend the rest of her life in a nunnery. And when she persuaded the Pope to send Henry um, an order telling him he must stop seeing Anne Boleyn, he just tossed it to one side. And Catherine's health began to grow worse, um, fanning the flames of rumour that she was being poisoned, possibly by the Boleyn family, who would prefer that she was dead. And her best friend, uh, Maria de Salinas, who'd been so loyal to her ever since they both arrived from Spain, was banned from visiting her. And um, Catherine refused to swear the oath of accession, which then uh, put her life at risk and that of her daughter, Mary, because um, it had been, it was a bit of a legal trick to try and trap her into um, something which could be called treasonable. Um, poor Charles Brandon was sent to uh, extricate her from her comfortable castle and uh, take her to the fens where a damp place where she, she would definitely not have lasted very long. But strong to the end, uh, Catherine uh, absolutely refused to move and Charles Brandon, being a gentleman and perhaps the last of the true Tudor knights, refused to use force. And um, eventually uh, Catherine's illness became so bad that uh, by the end of the year, um, 1535, so we're talking about um, the, the first week of January 1536, uh, Maria de Salinas managed to storm her way into Kimbolton Castle and was actually able to be at Catherine's bedside uh, when she died. Now, I've mentioned about the, the speculation about poisoning, but I'd like to recommend to you a, a book by... Giles Tremlett, uh, called Catherine of Aragon, Henry's Spanish Queen, which was uh, really my main reference book over the last four or five years because it brought together the uh, original documents and translations of them um, and helped me sort out the, the facts from the myths that have grown up around Catherine of Aragon. And I, I think it is 
very much a book worth reading. I'm now working on a, a new book about the life of Catherine Willoughby, an amazing woman. Um, once again, I don't think um, people know enough about her, so I'm hoping to contribute something to deal with that. I'm basing it as much on the known facts as it's possible to do and only using fiction to fill in the gaps. But she was, of course, the um, not just the daughter of Maria de Salinas, but also the last wife of Charles Brandon. And so she became Duchess of Suffolk. Uh, she was 14 when they married, and he was 49. And we have to remember that that was, of course, perfectly acceptable at the time, although it has given me a few challenges in how to deal with it when writing. Um, links to all of my books can be found on my website at tonyriches.com. And the next podcast in the series is the story of Queen Anne Boleyn. Thank you for listening. Je <laughs>